Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Last week we found ourselves in... 2 Samuel chapter 8. Just want to remind you of one verse from 2 Samuel chapter 8. I think it was one of the critical verses. And that one verse was verse 15. Hear it again. So David reigned over all of Israel. And here's the sentence in that verse I really want you to remember. And David administered justice and equity to all his people, to all his people. And I think the reason I, I, I repeat that verse is because I think that is really the backdrop for 2 Samuel chapter 9 and 2 Samuel chapter 10. We see, we're told in 2 Samuel 8 that David is seeking to be a godly king. He is seeking to administer justice and equity, not just to some, but to all of his people. And then when we come to chapters 9 and 10, I think, brothers and sisters, we are given two examples of such a just reign, of such a grace-enabled reign. We see in chapter 9 an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous story of love. It's one of the greatest, I think, in, in, in many ways. It's, it's an amazingly one of the greatest love chapters we find in Holy Scripture. And as I mentioned at the 9 o'clock service uh, last week, I said that I was uh, somewhat afraid of, of, of preaching uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8 because of it touching on such uh, weighty issues that are before us. Well, I can come to a, a passage like today, 2 Samuel chapter 9, and, and, I, and I'm tentative to, to preach it as well. And the reason being, it's such a beautiful chapter, I am I'm cognizant of my shortcomings. And I suspect I will not preach it as it deserves to be preached. It's so beautiful. And yet, there it is. It's absolutely gorgeous. David's reign is described for us as just reign. Really, internally. How does he seek to administer justice and equity within his kingdom? We might call this his national policy chapter. And then when we move into 2 Samuel chapter 10 we get to see him uh, seeking to be a, a, gr a gracious and a, and a good king and administering his justice and equity beyond his national borders. We see him and we see him in his, what we might call his foreign policy. And as we see both of these, we are reminded that we find ourselves in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and we have our own calling 
to pursue justice and equity, justice and righteousness. We've, had, we've got our own calling as Christians to plant those seeds. And we've got that calling to plant those seeds within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're called to plant those seeds outside the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking by God's grace that some of those who are outside will be brought in and might become indeed brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's kind of the layout of 2 Samuel. And at this point I would say, okay, now let's dive in to 2 Samuel chapter 9. But I, but I don't want to go there yet. Instead, I want to go to the prophet Isaiah. To the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, and if you should have your own Bible, you can turn there. If you want to use a pew Bible, you can turn there. If you do use that pew Bible, please just leave it on the pew after the service so we'll know which ones need to be wiped down. Okay? But in Isaiah chapter 42, we're given a description not of the first David, we're given a description of the second David. We're given a description of the Messiah. We're given a description of the son of David, the one who was to come. And we're told by the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're given the words of the Father about the coming suffering servant. We're told about the coming Messiah. And that he will pursue justice, not just for Israel, but justice for the nations. I want you to hear the first four verses. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. The Father delights in the Son. I have put my spirit upon him. Isn't that a prediction of the Holy Spirit resting upon Jesus at his baptism? I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice, justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now that's a beautiful picture of the son of David. That's a beautiful picture of our Messiah. And we're told that our Messiah will pursue justice, not just for Israel, justice for the nations. He is going to pursue that. We're told that's, that's what he's going to do. But we're also told how he's going to do it. We're also told in what manner. We're also told what his demeanor would be as he seeks to bring justice throughout the world. And what is that demeanor? What is his temperament? He will not cry aloud. He will not cry aloud. He will not lift up his voice. Or, or make it heard in the street. It's not like he's shouting it. He's gentle. But then notice verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's a picture of our gentle Savior. That's a picture of our king. That's a picture of the son of David. 
That's a picture of the son of David and how he deals with those who suffer, those who are going through suffering. Now let's see how the original David, the first David, would reflect, would, would give us a, a glimpse of the coming David. 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. Now let me pause there and say, outside the kingdom of Israel, outside of the promised land, in a place called No Word. Outside. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makur, the son of Amiel, at Lo-Debar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba and Saul's servant and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. We're told he's rich. That's what it means. Okay, but... You, rich Ziba, you're going to be a servant. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands a servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be unto God. Meditate with me for a while on three things. Meditate with me on a promise. Meditate with me on a risk. Meditate with me upon a name. A promise. First, a promise. 
It's quite clear from the text as we have read it that David here in chapter 9, he isn't merely offering what we might call bare human justice. He wasn't merely saying, okay, I hear, I've heard a report that there's this guy, he got booted out, he got taken out of the promised land, he's, he's over there in Lodabar, let's, let's bring him back and let's give him a place to stay. He wasn't merely saying that. Let's, let's give this guy, he, he had a, a case of bad luck. You remember, I think I've heard the story. Is, uh, he had a lady caring for him when he was a baby and she's running and, and she, she falls down and when she falls down, it breaks his feet. And he's lame from there all after. We need to kind of help out that guy. Let's give him a little bit of help. Let's give him his due. That's not really what David is saying here. Instead, he's using something far richer, far deeper, far more wonderful. And the, and the word is said. And, and we see it three times in verses 1 through 7. You see it in verse 1, that I may show him kindness. See it in verse 3, don't you? That I may show the kindness of God to him. And then you see it a third time. Ought to ring bells in your mind. You ought to say, okay, this is super important. I'm hearing it three times. Verse 7, do not fear, for I will show you what? Kindness. Chesed. Now, the word that's translated with our English word kindness is one of these huge, beautiful, glorious biblical words. Think about a, a beautiful rainbow in front of the backdrop of a dark cloud. And you see all the vivid colors. That's this word. It's a word that means, yes, kindness. But kindness just seems like, I need a little more. There's, there's kindness. There's the idea of love. I need a little more. It's the idea of steadfast stick to it this stick to it isness. Something like that. Love? It's the idea of covenantal friendship, loyalty. It's rich. It's deep. It's more than, would you just give the guy his due? Give him a little bit of lamb, make sure he's okay. That's not what David's about here. He's about showing rich, deep, covenantal love. And here, I think, is a point that touches us where we are in our society and in our day. I have to, I should, to be a faithful minister, try to apply the truths of Scripture to the issues of our day. And here, here's where we're going. I think this word has particular application for us as Christians in the black lives matter issue. Now I'm not talking about the organization. I'm not talking about hashtag Black Lives Matter. I'm not talking about if you search on Google for Black Lives Matter and you go to the official website. I'm not talking about that organization, that highly charged political group that has stated beliefs, that has stated goals and commitments that quite frankly, brothers and sisters, so many of them are antithetical to our Christian beliefs. For instance, on the front page of that website, the idea, the goal, 
of disrupting Western prescribed nuclear family structures. Of disrupting the nuclear family structures that we should be holding dear, that we should be seeing as God's gift of, 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 of husbands and wives loving one another and parents loving children and children loving parents enabled uh, a, a, a gift of Almighty God to bless this fallen world. I'm not talking about this politically charged group. No, I'm talking about the idea that because of all lives mattering, that means that black lives matter too. Now, dear ones, that is a beautiful, wonderful, glorious, biblical truth. Black lives matter too. But brothers and sisters, as good as that sentiment is, we can say so much more. It's not just that lives matter, but black lives, unborn lives, elderly lives, all human lives are the lives of human beings who are created in what? The image of Almighty God. The glorious, beautiful image of God. From the child in the womb to Miss Louise Knox in the nursing home about to leave this world to be in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ. All human beings created in the image of God, no matter their skin tone, no matter their, their mobility, no matter their wealth, no matter their intelligence, all created in the image of God. And therefore, do honor. Not to be denigrated. But you know what? As good of a statement, biblical statement as that is, we can go a step further as Christians. Because you know what we can say? Not only should I consider such lives mattering, I can go one step further and say, to whom can I extend love, covenant love unto? You see, dear ones, we have, we've got better stuff, if I might put it crassly, to offer the world than secular materialists, no matter their political or economic beliefs. We've got more to offer to this world than, as I said last week, the Marxists. We've got more to offer to this world than, I, as I said last week, the crass materialist capitalists. We've got the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got the truth that all lives, human lives, are in the image of Almighty God uh, and they deserve to be shown dignity and honor. And we've got the calling to express and extend gospel love to them all. David doesn't merely say, I, sh uh, I, I should give all my citizens their due. He says, to whom may I extend said to? 
To whom may I extend this covenant love to? But why? Why does he say that? Why does he say that after years and years and years? Why does he say it after years of reigning as king in Jerusalem? What motivates him? What does he recall after all those years? He recalls simply a promise. A covenant promise to love. A vow. A covenant promise made in his past motivates his present action. A covenant vow he made in the past is going to motivate him at this point in his present. Verse 1, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And oh, how utterly against the spirit of our age. One commentator used the illustration of a movie that many of you know, uh, probably know and maybe love, out of Africa. If you've seen that movie, you'll remember the romance between the Meryl Streep character and the Robert Redford character. By the way, an adulterous relationship and romance. But let's not, let's not pause there. Let me take you to a scene. It's a, a scene on the beach. And there on the beach, and, and Meryl Streep is wanting Robert Redford to what? Marry her. What was his response? Do you remember? It was this. Do you think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? In that line, he is expressing the spirit of our age. In that line, he utterly misses the point of the marriage covenant. A marriage covenant, a marriage vow, doesn't regulate one's, the intensity of one's love. A marriage vow, promise, regulates one's Security. I'll choose to love you till death do, do us part. Let me give you two illustrations, one from our Reformed history and one from my own personal history. B.B. Um, Warfield, many of you know of the great theologian. He was a professor at Princeton. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. An amazing mind. Uh, Warfield married a lady by the name of Annie. And on their honeymoon, it was, in, it was in Europe, I can't remember if it was Germany, Austria, Switzerland. They find themselves outside in the elements and a storm hits. And the storm is of such ferocity that it, it really messes with the mind of Annie. She's crippled mentally and emotionally from that point on from the honeymoon on. She becomes more and more and more and more of an invalid the older she gets. And this is what we're told about Warfield. We're not told that he said, okay, well, I've got an invalid wife, so I'm going to leave her. No, we're told he stayed with her all the way to the end. 
And, and this is what he would do. He's the great professor, but he would never leave Annie for more than two hours. He'd go and lecture, and then he'd skedaddle back to his home to be with Annie. We're told as she became more and more of an invalid, what did the great Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield do? He would carry Annie from upstairs to downstairs, from downstairs to upstairs, from her bed to a chair on the first floor, from her chair back to her bed. Why? He made a covenant promise. Now the story from my own personal life, my grandmother, my father's mother, my grandfather died when I was young, when I was y'all's age, when I was about Elizabeth's age. He's a great man. I loved him. He died, and several years later, my, grand, my grandmother remarried. She married a man by the name of Reuben, and they had a wonderful marriage. He was a godly man. But he contracted Alzheimer's. And he progressively got worse and worse and worse to the point he could not remember how to chew. He found himself in a bed in their home. And my grandmother, an elderly lady, would puree his food and put it in a, a large syringe and would put the syringe gently into his mouth to where she could put food on the back of his mouth so, she could, so he could swallow. And I looked at her, frail as she was doing that, I said, Grandmother. And she kind of cut me off. She said, Lee, I made a vow. A marriage covenant promise vow doesn't regulate one's the intensity of one's love, that fluctuates. But it does regulate its security. I will choose to love you till death do us part. The commentator goes on. What the world does not see is that love that truly loves is willing to bind itself, is willing to promise, is willing to willingly and gladly obligate itself so that the other may stand securely in that love. David had been so willing to covenant, not with a spouse, but with a dear friend, Jonathan, so willing to covenant and to promise that I am going to be faithful in my love to you. What sacred promises do we make, dear ones? As Christians in the Christian church, in an ARP church, let me tick off a few. When you come and enter into membership here, you make covenantal vows. When you, as a parent, bring your children to the font, you make covenantal parental vows. When you, should the congregation call you to be an officer, you come and you make covenantal officer vows. And if you are blessed with a spouse, you have made covenantal promises. What covenantal promises have you made in the past, my friends? And how are they affecting you in the present?
your church membership vows, your baptismal vows for your children, church officer vows, your marriage vows. What you promised in the past needs to affect your present. Keep your vows. By God's grace, let's keep our vows. By God's grace, let's seek to extend covenantal love to one another. Brings me to my second point. I'll be briefer. The second word of our meditation, risk. To do so incurs risk. All of our choices in life, dear ones, bring with them a certain measure of risk. Whether you're conscious of it or not, you're making risk assessments all the time. Whether it's Nadine, Lord willing, in the near future, riding the subway, or whether it's you walking down the street, or whether it's you getting behind the wheel of the car, or whether it's you trying to help a wounded animal, or whether it's you coming into this sanctuary as you did today. You take risk. You're making risk assessments. Life is full of risks. Making covenant promises and acting upon them involves what, dear ones? Risk. Look back at our text, verse 6. And Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face, and he paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, and you need to read these words with a quivering voice, with fear in your voice. Behold, I, I am your servant. He's scared. He's taking a risk. The king has called him. The king has called him, grandson of Saul. M yes, Mephibosheth was lame. He was physically vulnerable. But he was also a part of the former regime's family. And what often happened in that day? When a new regime is formed, when a new king is on the throne, what did you do with the former king and what did you do with all of his family? You did what? You wiped them out. You killed them. You slaughtered them. Can you, can you imagine what's going on in Mephibosheth's heart and mind? But not just his, David's as well. Do you think that there were still any Saul loyalists in the land? Do you think as King David is seeking to administer justice and equity to all that he's going to make some, mad, some folks mad? Because when you seek to administer justice and equity for all, you are going to mess with, challenge oppressors. And when you challenge oppressors, and those oppressors get discontent, who are they going to be looking to? A challenger, aren't they? Maybe someone from the former king's family? 
Covenant vows bring risks. The risk of being what? Hurt. That's the nature of covenant vows made in a fallen world between sinners. It's part and parcel, dear ones, with love. To love, to promise to love, will, not may, will entail the risk of hurt. The risk of attack. The risk of humiliation. The risk, yes, even of betrayal. And if that's the case between us, how much more is it the case between the son of David and his church? The son made an eternal covenant choice to love sinners. He made that choice not with the potential possibility that he's going to risk something. He makes the eternal covenant choice to love knowing that that choice would take him where? To the cross. To bear the hell his people deserve. Why does he do it? Because he chooses and has promised to love. And if he so loved us and made covenant vows to love us unto death on the cross, guess what his love can enable us to do? Extend chesed to one another. One final meditation, a name. A name. It's not one that you hear much these days. As I mentioned this morning, it's, it's not one that's going to crack the top 100 common boys' names in the USA. And that's sad. It's a name that's mentioned seven times in this text. That ought to make you perk up your ears. Seven times? Wow. I said three times, this name seven times. And it's the first word that this man hears coming out of the mouth of David. Verse 6. And Mephibosheth, son of, David, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. Not a nameless exile. Not, oh, that member, that last remaining member of my enemy's family. Not just some guy who had a tough luck accident when he was a little boy. You can picture the scene, can't you? Is there anyone left in, 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 in the house of my enemy Saul that I may show covenant love unto? Ziba replies, yes, king. Notice Ziba's reply. He doesn't, he doesn't mention a name, does he? He says, yes, king, a cripple. And I'm just envisioning David saying, yeah, but what is his name? Oh, by the way, it's Mephibosheth. And, and I'm imagining David saying, Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. I've, I got it. And here comes Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth! A person, a person with a name, a person of great worth in the sight of God, a person of great worth in the sight of David, one to be, yes, shown justice, but one who could be shown so much more, so much more. One to be shown covenant love, One to be called to put his crippled feet under the king's table. One to be told, you don't have to be afraid of me. Yes, I've got the power and authority, but I'm not going to use that power and authority to abuse you. I'm going to use that power and authority to do what? Bless you. I'm going to give you all the land back. And not only that, not only are you going to have good earth, you're going to sit at my table. And not just for one meal, you'll be like my son. I'll feed you every meal, morning, noon, and night. I am Mephibosheth. Christian, you are Mephibosheth. The son of David, the Messiah, has called you, and he doesn't show you justice. He doesn't show Lee justice. Because what's the justice I deserve and you deserve? God's eternal wrath poured out on me. Instead, he shows me what? I said, and he says, Lee, put your crippled feet under my table. And Christian, that's what he tells you. And because you know it, because you taste it, because he feeds you every meal, you, by his grace, can show it to others. To others. If David pictures the Messiah, Savior, King, who will not break the bruised reed or snuff out the smoldering wick, can we receive such grace and reflect it ourselves? Let's pray. We do not deserve to place our feet under your table, O Lord, but you have called us to do so. Break our hearts. Open them to others. May we rejoice in the grace that is ours, but may we also share that message of grace to others. May we be concerned, yes, Lord, for justice, but may we be, of all people, so much more concerned with spreading grace 
and mercy and love. May Christ rule in and through us as we seek the blessing of others. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.